From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The New South Wales election is on March 25, with a 12-year-old coalition government struggling to survive. Polls have had Labor ahead, although Liberal Premier Dominic Perrottet, who took over when Gladys Berejiklian quit, is putting up a strong last-minute fight. If opposition leader Chris Minns wins, Labor would be in power in every mainland state as well as federally. Today we have three guests to talk us through the New South Wales campaign. Anthony Green is the ABC's election analyst. Andy Marks is a professor from the Western Sydney University and a close observer of state politics. And Ashley Raper is the ABC's New South Wales state political reporter. We start with Anthony Green. Anthony, can you give us a broad overview of the state of the parliament now, what Labor needs to do to win or to achieve to win, and the challenges for the Perrottet government to hang on? The parliament is already a hung parliament. The redistributions and the loss of a seat of a by-election plus two defections mean the government's been in minority for several years, but its hold on power has never been threatened because Labor... Had a, particular, had a poor result last time, was well short of um, being able to form government themselves. But at this election, it's almost certain the government's now been in office for 12 years, the longest period of Conservative government in New South Wales history, the poorest period of Labor uh, performance in, in a century. The government's likely to lose seats. It's very tough for them to hold all the seats they hold. But the question is whether Labor can get nine seats to get into government in their own right or whether we're going to end up with a hung parliament. There's a string of seats on the edges of Sydney, on margins between 5 and 7% that are going to determine whether Labor forms government or whether they fall short. There are some big differences between the federal electoral provisions and those in New South Wales. Notably, in New South Wales, there's optional preferential voting and limits on donations and spending. Now, starting with optional preferential, how does that work and what are the implications? Well, simply for a vote to count, a voter doesn't have to fill in all the squares. And uh, there's probably half of all votes for minor parties in, in the contest. Those voters don't give preferences for one of the final two. What that does is where at federal elections, and it particularly affects Labor, where at federal elections, 85% of Green preferences will flow to Labor. At state elections, 40 to 50% of Green voters will give no preferences at all. So Labor can't come from behind, from a long way behind, and win in New South Wales as they do at federal elections. It's much harder to win from second place. The other thing, although it may backfire on the government in this election in the sense that with One Nation back in the field and potentially polling, well, One Nation are issuing just vote one out of vote cards. And if there's a, a loss of coalition vote to One Nation and a high exhaustion rate, then that will hurt the coalition. For the last decade, Optional preferential voting has worked for the coalition. At this election, particularly if Labor has a higher primary vote, it may be, may be Labor that gains an advantage. Now, what about the limits on donations and spending? Well, basically, as we saw at the federal election how the Teal candidates in particular could get large donations from Climate 200 and, and also donations, lots of donations from individuals. All individuals and organisations are limited. I think it's a little over $3,000 they can donate. So Climate 200 can't give these independents seed funding as they did at the federal election. They need to raise their own money. And when it comes to the campaign itself, 
there are limits on how much an individual candidate can spend in an election campaign and those limits do make it tougher to see the sort of the mega spends we saw in seats like Kuyong and North Sydney and McKellar at the last federal election. So they operate against the teals, you think? Yeah, it's, it's, it's harder for them. It means um, all independents need to have their name known and recognised. There was huge spending and huge media coverage of the teal campaign at the federal election. At state level, they don't have that advantage. And there's also, they, they don't have that spend and time to get their names out in the same way. They also, they're not assisted by optional preference voting. all the teal independents one from second place. That's much harder to do in New South Wales with optional preferential voting. And also that the issues aren't running for them in the same way. They don't have climate change as a big an issue. They don't have the ICAC as an issue, which the government's refusing to implement. In New South Wales, there is a strong ICAC. And also there's not Scott Morrison there, who was a, a definite drag on the coalition support at the federal election. Well, they failed to win any seat in Victoria. So uh, do you think they'll be struggling to win a seat in New South Wales? They have a better chance in New South Wales because the seats that they're running in have a stronger um, tradition of electing independents. Pittwater, North Sydney, North Shore and Manly have all been won by independents in the last three decades. So there's, there's something to work on there, which wasn't the case in Victoria. They were running in seats which hadn't been traditionally won by independents at state politics. So all of them have a chance because of that history in those seats. But still, I think they're still going to find it harder to win than the federal election for all those issues I just mentioned. Now, what are the opinion polls telling us about the overall picture in the election at this point? Well, the polls are showing Labor ahead on two-party preferred. I think optional preferential voting in the presence of independents and Greens makes the two-party preferred a harder measure to use in New South Wales. But they're showing Labor ahead, and they're also showing Labor ahead on first preference vote, which means that they will have the advantage at the election. The coalition has a number of seats which are really tough to hold. There's a number of seats in outer Sydney which are real ding-dong battles, a couple of seats which on federal figures would be easily won by Labor. So it's a, it's a tough job for the government to get back. There's no seat you can point to as they're likely to win, to gain at this election. There are seats they are quite likely to lose, and in that case, it's how many seats do they lose? Does Labor pick them up? And um, how close does Labor get to forming a majority government? Forming majority government for both sides will be difficult on the current numbers, but you'd have to say Labor's better place to finish with more seats. Apart from the Teals, how important do you think, therefore, the independents and small parties will be in this poll? Well, for all the talk of Teals... There are six independents already there holding the balance of power and five of them are highly likely to be to be re-elected. Uh, and um, they have had a good working relationship with the current government uh, and all of them have expressed the view that they support some sort of change to um, poker machines to allow um, 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 to stop cash payment for, for poker machines, which is a, a policy Labor hasn't embraced. So, I mean, it's, there will be a strong chance of a hung parliament because of the presence of those independents, whether Teals win or not. Now, there's been speculation that this is the election for the millennial voters. Do you adhere to that theory? Oh, I, 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 I tend to think there's a bit of a... I, I, I'm not sure why we want to call them millennials. I think the issue that's really biting is cost of living 
the fact that people can't buy houses, that rental affordability is terrible and rental availability is terrible. Now, the inability to buy houses and rent is, a, is you know, something that's affecting millennial voters, but I suspect it's not just millennial voters that are being affected. Um, there are lots of structural issues to do with cost of living and interest rates and buying and renting, which will affect this election. And as the incumbent government, none of them are going to help the Perrottet government. Now, just finally, there are a heap of marginal seats, obviously. But what are the half dozen that you'd uh, nominate as perhaps the most interesting seats for people to watch on election night? Well, there's Penrith and East Hills, which are the government's most marginal. On federal figures, the government could retain them. But uh, there'll be real tight contests of both under 1%. There's a couple of rural seats, Goulburn, Tweed and Upper Hunter, I'm not sure they'll be in play. The real battle is an arc of seats in northwest Sydney from Parramatta to Penrith, which are mostly sitting on margins of 5 6%. Winston Hills, Parramatta, Riverston, Londonderry and Penrith, a uh, bandit there. There's Holsworthy and Heathcote in southern Sydney, uh, and they'll, they'll all be worth watching. They're sitting on margins, which the Labor Party needs to generate a 5 to 6% swings a win. Polls are showing Labor might achieve that, but will they achieve it in all of those seats? So there's a real battle there. Labor, the coalition could win back the western seat of Murray, which is held by one of the former shooters, fishers and farmers turned independent candidates. And then there's a couple of those North Shore seats where the Teals could be running. There's a, a lot of seats. It's going to be hard to see a particular theme at this election because each of the seats has their own little peculiarities. And a hard night for you on election night yet again. Thanks very much, Anthony. Professor Andy Marks, taking a long view, what sort of government has the New South Wales one been? Uh, Michelle, it's been one that's very focused on big kit, uh, asset recycling, uh, you know, the other... I guess, uh, term for privatisation has been, uh, I guess, enabled them to undertake a really large scale infrastructure program. We've seen roadways like West Connects, we've seen metro rail, uh, light rail projects, uh, both planned and realised uh, in a way that hasn't really been the case with previous administrations. So it's been 12 years of building stuff, but it, that hasn't really produced, I, I think, uh, in Western Sydney, certainly, the kind of support they may have hoped for in the electorate. It's also, though, been a government that's been marked by some scandals, hasn't it? Quite a lot of scandals, indeed. Yeah, it has. And New South Wales is you know, regrettably plagued by uh, that. I think um, most recently we saw um, challenges around the appointment of a trade commissioner role for um, John Berilaro. We saw, of course, issues even with Berejiklian, and the former Premier's uh, departure, around her, uh, I guess, claims that there was nothing wrong with pork barrelling, for example. Um, so I guess that comes on the on the tail of um, a pretty ignominious end to the Labor administration uh, prior to the coalition coming in as well um, with, um, I think, some corruption issues of their own. So New South Wales politics been has been mired, I guess, in the last decade or so. Well, bipartisanship on scandals. Uh, now, what difference do you think the move from the former Premier to Dominic Perrottet has made politically? Would she have been a better chance of holding power? I think so. I think that um, even with the way that her Premiership ended uh, on the back of an undisclosed relationship, um, I think that 
she still maintained a level of trust, Berejiklian that is, and, and Perrottet really for much of the electorate is an unknown quantity. Perhaps the reason why he's venturing out into areas beyond economic policy, you know, as a former treasurer, he's wanting to show that he's interested in social policy as well, which might explain his stance on things like problem gambling. So, you know, he's trying to give himself some moral shape, I think, ahead of the election, but he hasn't had a lot of time to build that momentum. He's also had his own scandals, mostly from within, where, you know, his division within his own party exposed him to compromise around his choice of a, a Nazi uniform, of all things, for his 21st birthday party. And uh, so he's he, he'll struggle, I think, to get that mantle of trust that Berejiklian had and, and Baird, uh, Mike Baird before her as well. They were very trusted figures. Perrottet is a bit more of an unknown quantity. So what are the biggest issues in the campaign so far? Look, it's been a case of uh, all quiet on the Western Front in the campaign. You know, they, there are some very bold statements around what both Labor and the Coalition would like to portray as big differences, but they're pretty similar. They converge, for example, on the issue of uh, road toll relief. They have rebate packages that may bear different names, but essentially offer the same, I guess, cashback schemes to motorists, and that's a big appeal for Western Sydney, of course. They have similar investments in the health space. Perrottet's committed a lot of funds to a new hospital in the ultra-marginal electorate of East Hills. And conversely, um, Minns has committed some funds to a hospital in Rouse Hill, another marginal as well uh, in the outer Western region. So uh, education is another one too. Where do they perhaps differ? is in the approach and in the, in the mechanisms of funding. So Perrottet launched last week his Future Fund, which is an $850 million package that um, is incentivises saving for education and housing, whereas the MINS approach has been to direct funds directly to schools as opposed to individuals. So a few nuances, Michelle, but they're broadly op operating in the broad centre. Well, on this theme, the government has been termed labour light, and it's certainly been uh, quite progressive on issues such as, for example, climate change. Do you think that labour light description's accurate? Uh, I guess um, that's difficult to stick with a Premier that's of the religious right, uh, essentially, which is an unusual thing for the Liberal Party as well. But, um, but that, he's been something of a surprise, given mm. his background. He has, and I think he's recognised that he needs a broader support base. And so one of the best assets, ironically, for, for Perrottet is his treasurer, uh, a, you know, a very moderate Liberal um, in Matt Keane. And I think they both looked very closely at the outcomes of the federal election. Uh, they looked at issues like the need to do more in women's policy areas, and, and they looked at uh, the need to do more in environment and sustainability. And Matt Keane has launched some very significant initiatives as treasurer to try and counter that. So, for example, I don't think we'll see a, see a teal wave at this election as we did at uh, last year's federal poll. Even before the federal election, though, uh, they were quite uh, progressive on climate change, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. And I think in many respects, they've viewed it through an economic lens, which is how they've mounted the argument to I guess, create so many incentive mechanisms in their last budget around clean energy, for example. So very, very big chunks of cash and investment were directed towards clean energy initiatives and sustainability initiatives by Matt Keane. And that is a recognition as well, to my earlier point, that infrastructure isn't exactly moving boats like it used to. And the public and a younger electorate, certainly in places like Western Sydney, are looking for the Liberals to do more in that space. And so Matt Keane's been the one waving the flag in that space. And, and 
that gloss, of course, uh, you know, helps Perrottet, but uh, it's been primarily something driven by the Treasurer. Now, you mentioned the Teals. You are doubtful they'll perform all that well? Look, there's a bit of a tradition of independence in electorates like North Sydney, but the, the way that the preference flows, of course, work uh, is different at the state level, and, and I just don't think you'll see the surge that we saw federally. And I also think, as I mentioned, you know, that, that surge occurred in the face of intransigence around issues of climate and, and women, whereas, you know, uh, Keane and Perrottet have been very um, strident in trying to push those issues in a progressive way. So I don't think you'll see the same kind of wave. If Chris Minns wins, what sort of Premier do you think he'd be? Well, you know, you'd look at the way he's behaved in opposition and he, I think he came in in, in around about uh, June 21 and he was immediately focused on taking the heat out of opposition. I think he recognised that not just in the pandemic but in politics more broadly, the electorate doesn't respond well to, to, you know, to constant conflict and antagonism. So he's been very conciliatory and he uh, is not approaching opposition in the attack dog way that uh, we've seen in recent times in politics. So... As a leader, I think um, he'll look to be conciliatory. He may adopt a bit of the old hawk Labor model of consensus. He'll look to bring, um, I guess, areas of disagreement together. Um, you know, I think the Jobs and Skills Summit federally is perhaps an indication of how MINS might approach things at the state level because there are some big issues around skill shortages, uh, around housing affordability that he'll have to address early. So he might be the next wave of Labor consensus politics. So would a Labor government make much difference in terms of federal-state relations because the Perrottet government seems to get on pretty well with the federal Labor government? Yeah, I think um, you'll see a pretty uh, good continuum in that space. You're quite right that the relations federally have been uh, pretty positive uh, for New South Wales. It's interesting as well that Perrottet's found common ground on a lot of issues with Dan Andrews in Victoria. So whether that continues will be a factor, but I, I imagine you'll see a really good opportunity, and, and these opportunities never last, for some really high-level cooperative federalism, and there are some big issues, particularly in education, that need to be addressed, you know, the way that TAFE and vocational education uh, works with the rest of the system, schools and universities, etc. Andy Marks, many thanks. Thanks, Michelle. Ashley Raper, give us some description of the campaign on the ground. Is it focused on the personality of the two leaders uh, and the broad issues, or is it a very localised seat-by-seat campaign? In other words, will the ground campaigns be decisive, do you think? Look, Labor is running a very small target campaign. So they're going seat by seat. They're very focused on that and it's a very disciplined campaign. I think so far it has been quite a bland, almost dull campaign. And that has a lot to do with the fact that there are fixed terms in New South Wales. So there was no surprise when the election would be. It was always set for for March the 25th. But what happens with that, that there's no momentum and build up an excitement for when this campaign actually starts. So it's been a very, almost a long slog for weeks now. In terms of the coalition, there's been no overarching theme with what they're, they're trying to achieve. The Premier has looked to the old Liberal playbook of trying to make this 
campaign around the economy and pointing out, uh, as he says, that the Liberals are better at managing the economy than Labor. And that's what they've been really pushing. He talks a lot about this economic plan, and that is how the Liberals are approaching it. They're looking at the bigger issues, whereas Labor is very disciplined and going seat by seat. And how do you think Perrottet and Minns are going down with the voters? Would Berejiklian have been a more effective uh, Premier if uh, she'd been in power for the uh, coalition to go into this campaign with? Certainly Chris Minns would undoubtedly be happier that he's running against Dominic Perrottet than, than Gladys Berejiklian. But overall, I think the electorate has been surprised by Dominic Perrottet. I think there were a lot of concerns when he first came in that his conservative views and he has not lived up to that expectation and become known as quite a pragmatic leader. The problem for Chris Minns is that he isn't very well known and there is concern that he's not cutting through because he has this carefully controlled image. And when you've got relatively new leaders, Dominic Perrottet versus Chris Minns, uh, they've only been in the job for about 18 months each. It is a big ask to, to get cut through. I think Dominic Perrottet has been more successful in doing that because he has bolder ideas uh, and that's around gambling reform. He, he announced a, a future fund as well uh, for children. That's had a lot of commentary around it. Chris Minns' small target campaign is problematic when uh, voters don't know the leader that well. Now, just to explore a couple of those issues, Ashley, the gambling reform, what's involved here and what's the role of the gambling lobby in the campaign? Because they're pretty tough players, aren't they? Yes, and it's been a pretty bruising debate so far for for the coalition. Now, Dominic Perrottet came out last year. There was a Crime Commission report that was handed down in New South Wales into money laundering in poker machines, in pubs and clubs. And from that point, Dominic Perrottet was very quick to say that that he wanted cashless gaming in, in New South Wales. Now, it took him a while to develop a policy and a plan to put to the people, but it has really become a policy division between the two. Now, Chris Minns hasn't been as forthright in what he wants with gambling reform. He has suggested that there'll be a trial of cashless gaming if if Labor wins. And that's a trial, and it's a small trial. It's 500 machines when New South Wales has 90,000. Now, he's been perhaps accused of being out of perhaps out of step with unions, with charity groups, with religious groups who all say that cashless gaming is the way to go. Whereas Dominic Perrottet, his plan is that all poker machines in pubs and clubs will be cashless by 2028. Now, it was difficult for him to get his coalition partner, the Nationals, in on this deal. It looked like that he wasn't going to get them there, but he did. And that's because there's been a compensation package as well in terms of helping pubs and clubs, especially in regional areas, with, with that transition. Do you think Minns is frightened of the power of the gambling lobby? That's the sense from what you get. There is no evidence to that, but but he has been very cautious in progressing with this and, and talking a lot about the jobs that pubs and clubs especially uh, bring to, to communities. So he hasn't wanted to take on clubs New South Wales. 
to the extent that Dominic Perrottet uh, has. But it also Chris Minns and the feeling from Labor is that they didn't want to get sucked into this debate. This wasn't something that they thought would be a vote turner or, or a vote winner, and it didn't fit into their strategy, and they have not wanted to get sucked in to this. They've had to release a policy, and they released that quite early. They actually went ahead of Dominic Perrottet, but they were quite clear that they didn't want to weigh into this issue. Now, this Children's Future Fund, how would this work and how do you think it's going down? It does smack somewhat of a desperate handout. It was very much a surprise when it was announced at the Liberal launch. Dominic Perrottet has never spoken about this before. He's talked about reforms and and poker machines and stamp duty and and then policies came from that. Now, this was a policy that seemingly came out of the blue and how it works is that the government puts in $400 into a fund for every child 10 and under in, in New South Wales right now and they'll add newborns from next year. And with that $400, then parents can match it if they want and put in money annually up to $1,000. And then the government will match that money up to $400. So over time, it grows and and the government's put out figures that if a baby is born this year, the government puts in, the parents put in the maximum amount, they'll end up with $49,000 when they turn 18. And they can only access the fund to put towards housing or education expenses. Now, Labor does not support this fund. They have raised concerns that it could create inequality just in terms of there are obviously parents who can afford to put in and parents who cannot. Now, the government has put in a provision that if a family is on the family tax benefit A, then the government will chip in $200 a year without any contribution from the parents. But Labor is also pointing out that there is in a cost of living crisis, that there is going to be a whole section of families who do not have loose change to put in this fund. It's going on the mortgage, it's it's going on rising energy bills. And it is an interesting policy to come from the coalition at this time when it doesn't address the immediate concerns of cost of living. So it has played out in an interesting way. There are people all for it, but there are some people who are scratching their heads as to why this is the centrepiece big announcement at the election at this time when we all know this is the cost of living election. Now, you've spoken about the Labor campaign as being a small target one, but how is Chris Minns balancing the negative and positive aspects of his campaign? He's been very disciplined uh, in this campaign. Labor went into this with a strategy and they have really not deviated from the strategy and they came out early and I'm not sure if that's because they panicked early that they didn't have a lot of policies out there. Last year there was lots of discussion about where their policies were, what they were taking to the people and they really had not announced very many policies and then they came out quite early, January the 8th, which surprised people with with their first big policy announcement because people were still on holidays there and there was this expectation that perhaps the campaign wouldn't start till after Australia Day when people were back at work, children were back at school and people start paying attention. But I think Labor came out early, they released some big policies around housing, their poker machine reform, they did education announcement, they were controlling the narrative at the start. But then they haven't had a lot of policies as we get closer to the election, which I think has been hard in trying to capture 
the attention of voters when they're starting to tune in. And I, it raises a question really whether Chris means it is cutting through. And what about the Teals? They didn't do well in Victoria. Are they cutting through in uh, this election or are their issues uh, not so important because, after all, the government there, the state government's very progressive on climate change and there's not the Scott Morrison factor? Yes, it's going to be interesting to see how the Teals go. Now, there are five Teals running in New South Wales, four in Sydney's north, uh, in seats that did fall to Teals federally, those those same areas, and there's one running in the Southern Highlands south of Sydney, and it is a different landscape in New South Wales for a number of reasons, as you pointed out, Michelle, and there's also there's optional preferential voting here, which makes it harder for them with preference flows to to get elected. And they're not such a force with the Climate 200 backing because of donation limits as well. And they are running on environment integrity issues. But seat by seat, there could be one or two that are successful on Sydney North. Uh, Ironically, when they're running on women's issues, there's on North Shore, um, there's Helen Conway, a teal trying to unseat one of the few Liberal women in New South Wales Parliament, Felicity Wilson, and that seat was looking like it could possibly go. But it is quite unclear exactly what will happen with the Teals. They're not, they don't have, seem to have the same momentum and force that we saw federally. Just finally, Ashley, as to the result, government, Labor, or are you sitting on the fence at this stage? I really think nobody is calling it because this is so tight. And I think as well, what Labor has to achieve here, even if there is a mood for change, which we is it's coming across that perhaps there is a mood for change. There's not this very much anti-Perite government sentiment, but there is this suggestion perhaps after 12 years there have been some problems internally with this government, their run on infrastructure. You cannot deny that there's been so much building in New South Wales, but people have become used to that. But just in terms of Labor then getting across the line, nine seats is such a a big ask and whether there's enough mood for change to actually get them to nine seats to win a majority government. So if if I had to call the result, it is looking like it will be a hung parliament. A minority government will need to be formed. It's just who gets closer at this point. It'll be an interesting night. Thank you very much, Ashley Raper. Thank you to our other two guests as well. And thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. That's all for this podcast. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevear. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.